Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. These guys are smart. Chris Paul is recognizing at this stage of his career, why am I going to drag myself in this wagon and smash it, you know, up against the wall day after day with the Clippers when I can go somewhere else, start fresh, and not have the same game-in, game-out pressure on my shoulders. You know, people say, oh, that's weak, or they say the other. I think it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant on the part of the players to recognize what general managers and team builders recognized generations ago. Nobody asked Magic Johnson or Larry Bird to do it by themselves. They had great teammates. They had a cast of future Hall of Famers around them to get it done. Don't get mad at the players for recognizing what team builders have known for years. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, NBA free agency madness right before it all breaks through the dam of our consciousness with Sekou Smith from NBA.com. Also, I've got some choice words about a historic sports and politics partnership coming out of Seattle. I got Colin Kaepernick watch, defending his right to silence. I also have a Just Stand Up award, a Just Sit Your Ass Down, not to John McEnroe, but to his enablers. And a statement about a very, very short hiatus that we're going to be doing with the show. We're just going to be gone a couple of weeks, but then we'll be back in full effect. But first, Sekou Smith. Phil Jackson, like no other figure in sports history, and I really have given this a lot of thought, seems to have made this rapid-fire journey from Zen Master to universal object of derision. I mean, is it the case that Phil just was not suited for this job? Are we being too harsh on him? Are we overvaluing his tenure with the Jordan Bulls and Shaq and Kobe too much? I mean, what? Because you, you see this too, right? Like he's gone from the guy to the punchline. How, how do you understand that? Well, look, there are several generations of NBA fans you know, for whom Phil's tenure with the Knicks is all they know. Mm. Then there are a bunch of us who will look back historically on what he's done in the league, the championships he's won, and we won't consider his Knicks years at all. The same way Michael Jordan gets a pass for his Wizards years. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're going to remember Phil at his zenith. And, you know, a lot of people, they, not everybody's going to focus on the disaster that was his Knicks tenure as team president. Um but there's no doubt about it. If you've if you've been on the train from the time he took over with the Bulls to now, like like I have, and I'm sure you and some other people have, the fall was precipitous. I mean, it was it's unreal how quickly he went from, you know, the genius and the and the Zen master and the Lord of the Rings and all this stuff to a guy who can't even, you know, repair the relationship between his two best players and Carmelo yeah. Anthony and Kristaps Porzingis. So to me, it became a deal where Phil was a generational, in a, you know, he's an all-time great coach, but he's, a, you know, he's stuck in a generational gap as a general manager slash team president. He, you know, he's still operating with the league through one lens, and everybody else has moved on to the league in a completely different iteration. And, and I think that's where Phil's biggest struggle was in New York, in that he thought he was still dealing with, you know, the the late 90s, mid-2000s NBA, and everybody else has moved on from that. Yeah, and that actually gets to my next question about how much of this is not Phil's diminishing ability to judge talent, but that 
a new, we have a new generation of NBA players who are just much less likely to take some of the patronizing, here, read this book, you know, thinking about the LeBron instance of, oh, your friends are a posse, and not only his inability to communicate with this generation of players who are less likely to, to take that stuff, but also, I mean, his inability to to understand that when he would make these kinds of moves, like going after Carmelo in the press, that, and you, you should correct me if I'm wrong about this, that more than in previous generations, that now goes through the player pipeline at rapid speed and hurts your ability to draw in new players. No doubt. It goes through at light speed. And that's one of the reasons why you had to, if you're the Knicks, you had to part ways with Phil immediately after he threw Kristaps Porzingis under the bus. Because not only does that affect you with your internal talent, you know, with the players already in the fold, that travels to all the other guys who are in their first, second, and third years in the league who are going to be the free agents you need to recruit if you're the Knicks the next few years to get back into a position to be a viable team. And if you think these young guys are going to forget about the way you talked about Porzingis and Carmelo, the way you treated him, or if that word is not going to travel from locker room to locker room, you know, to posse, as he likes to to call it, in terms of these groups of people that are around these players, you're crazy. And you can't can't in good faith insult not only your two best players, but the best player in the league and in LeBron and expect that not to have, you know, ramifications for the for the foreseeable future. So the Knicks did what they had to do in cut and fill. I would argue that they probably should have done it sooner. Uh, you know, that should have, this should have happened last year. Mm. Um, the fact that you allowed him to draft a point guard last week, you know, based on his his undying affection and love for the triangle offense, that's even more egregious than than some of the other stuff that's going on. You you just allowed Phil to torpedo your 2017 draft with a player who may or may not be a fit at all in a system that's going to be played by the New York Yanks. And in addition, I mean, if you'd asked me before the draft, other than the top two guys who I was absolutely in love with, I would have looked at you and said Malik Monk and Dennis Smith Jr. And to see him pass on them for the person I'm calling a guy named Frank <laughs> is a little disturbing. And maybe he'll be a good player, but I just look at him and I'm like, oh, here's this guy named Frank who I never heard of. And over there is Malik Monk and Dennis 48-inch vertical Smith Jr., that's a little hard to take, especially with the triangle possibly going the way of the Betamax here, with Jeff Hornacek finally being allowed to coach as he wants. I would throw Zach Collins into that mix. And, you know, if you're talking about mm-hmm. a young guy that you want to develop, you know, that's got talent and uh, abilities that, that speak to today's NBA, you know, you could have gone a lot of different directions with that pick if you were the Knicks. Um, it's painful <laughs> for me. You know, as someone who grew up a Knicks fan, it's kind of painful that they – and it's so Dolan-esque that he gave Phil Jackson the draft while he was off, you know, playing with his band. <laughs> I, I guess he had a harmonica in his mouth somewhere, um, you know, jamming out and, and didn't realize exactly what was going down. And by the time he, he noticed, you know, good Lord, what have we done? You know, it's too late. You've already surrendered this draft. So, yes, yeah, I, I feel Knicks fans pain because to have endured this for as long as they have. And then I remember I, we, we made a trip. Uh, Rick Fox and Lang Whitaker and I on our road trip, we made a trip to to the Knicks training camp a few years ago when Phil was just taking over, and the optimism was through the roof. And he sat down with us on our our bus and talked about all the plans he had. And even then, I I was wondering like, how dedicated is he to this part of the process, one that he's never done before, given all his championships on his resume and everything he's done. He's never had to sit and grind away at the day-to-day that is being a, a team president, team architect, putting together a roster from from 15 on up. And that takes a different mindset, a different work ethic, um, a different vision for how you want to do it. And it takes you humbling yourself and understanding what you don't know about that process and, and relying on the people that do understand it for you to get it right. And I don't know that Phil was ever invested in that fully. I, I certainly think he liked the idea of the paycheck you get to do that job. Um, I think anybody would, but I, I don't think it's any coincidence, Dave, that Phil's, uh, you know, voice seemed to pipe up dramatically after the extension was, mm. you know, agreed upon. He, When Derrick Rose didn't show up for work, 
you were probably like me and everybody else looking for Phil Jackson or Steve Mills to step in front of a microphone and explain what the heck was going on. And they left that to Jeff Hornacek and the players. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden, Phil, you know, months later, Phil's got plenty to say about Carmelo, Porzingis, and people's posses and everything else. I don't think the timing of all of that should be lost on anyone. All right, let me ask you this. Jeff Hornacek, now going forward. Uh, I feel like that you need to have a big personality to handle the New York City media and be a successful coach in any of the sports. I feel like somebody like Mark Jackson could come in and be the sort of person who feeds the media, keeps them happy, and is successful. I feel like Jeff Hornacek is less that person, like the chef who cooks the meal for the media, and more the media looks at Jeff Hornacek and thinks, lunch. Like, we're going to feed on this dude. <laughs> if I could tell you right now they're going to give it a try with Jeff Hornacek, or I could tell you that they're going to bring in Jeff Van Gundy to be GM and Mark Jackson to be coach, what scenario do you think would be better for this team? I would prefer to see Mark Jackson there in a decision-making role, even even ahead of him being the coach, only because I, I don't think Mark Jackson gets enough credit for the culture he helped develop in the Bay Area with the Golden State Warriors. I think what he did there was beyond just being a coach. It was about cultivating the mindset of, of the young players on that roster at the time. And if he could do that in New York, you know, you don't know how anybody's going to be able to duplicate or try and replicate, you know, on-court success. That That's dependent on so many different variables. But if you're talking about crafting a, a culture and a mindset and a, in a modus operandi, I think Mark Jackson will be fantastic at that in New York, given his history with the city and his roots and his understanding of that franchise and, and what it means in the grand scheme of things. Um, I'm not as high on the idea of Jeff Van Gundy coming in there as the team builder architect. If I'm not mistaken, he quit on the Knicks before. Um, this is I don't, true. I don't, I don't get over. I'm, I'm one of those people that feels like if you quit one time, I don't know that I ever trust you again. If you mm. quit on me. Um, but if they're going to give Jeff Hornacek the leeway as an organization to, to implement, you know, basically what he had going early on in Phoenix before the bottom fell out and in, in the front office, you know, stepped in and meddled with that process. It wasn't bad. I mean, Hornacek knows the game. He understands how to put guys in the right you know, spots on the floor to get the best out of them. I just think if you if you keep him as coach, you have to find somebody for that team president slash GM role that is a visionary and who understands he has to take the pressure off of the coach and players moving forward. It has to be his vision, his plan, his identity that becomes the the touchstone for the New York Knicks, because I think you've already thrown everybody else under the bus far too much for them to be able to go out there and stand as the face of the franchise. All right, that, that's some very helpful analysis from you right there. I remember Mark Jackson when he was a uh, freshman point guard at St. John's and me being little trying to imitate the kind of crazy passes he was doing to Walter Berry and Chris Mullen on that team. So, yeah, those roots go very deep. I mean, when I say I remember Mark Jackson 80 pounds ago, you know I remember him <laughs> a long time ago. Man, he, we were like, wow, he's so good and skinny. And he's a really good person, like you know as well mm-hmm. as I do. Some of these guys, 10, 20 years removed from their playing days is when you really take the measure of them. And Mark has turned out to be a stand-up guy and a guy who believes in certain ways of doing things that, to me, resonate with today's NBA. And can I say when, when he won me over was less one-on-one talking to him and more the way he handled those broadcasts the first year yes. Golden State yes. was in the finals. I mean, I'm yes. serious. Like I thought that was just a profile in class. Yeah, he could have been a piece of work about it. And oh, yeah. He could, have, he could have really been vindictive and nasty about it. But you know what the weird thing is? During the finals, I watched, you know, I, I was standing high up in Section 219 before a game, taking pictures for Instagram like all of us want to be millennials do. And um, <laughs> I watched the floor, and I watched Mark walk out, and I watched Bob Myers cut a path across the floor directly to Mark Jackson, hug him, you know, and – and this is before game five of the NBA finals. I mean, Bob Myers right. could have had a million other things to do than, than go and bend Mark Jackson's ear for 10 minutes. And that tells you about what kind of guy Bob Myers is and what kind of guy Mark Jackson is for them to be able to have that conversation at this point in their careers, knowing what's gone down, you know, in the championships that have been won and 
since Mark Jackson was a part of that organization. Again, it just speaks to me to the kind of guy he is um, and, and the kind of respect he still has around the league. Mm. All right, so the, the next big flashpoint story, uh, and we should tell our listeners that we're doing this interview right before the midnight free agency absolutely wackadoodle uh, maelstrom that is going to take place, the perfect storm. So, but, but these are the issues that matter a lot to me. Phil Jackson matters a lot to me, and Chris Paul and James Harden matters a lot to me. Uh, you know this game very well. Does that combo work for you? Yes. And when you're talking about elite talent, top five at their position talent, I don't worry about fit because those players are so good. They're so talented, have such a a grasp on the league and how you function at the highest level that I don't worry about them making the necessary adjustments. The other part about it that I really love is that they kept the, the key role players that you need for those two guys to thrive. Trevor Ariza is going to be a huge piece of that. Um, Eric Gordon, sixth man of the year, is going to be huge. Uh, they got to make sure they keep Nene in the fold. No offense to to Decker or to Lou Williams. Um, or Beverly. Or, or, that's or, or the, Patrick Beverly, who's a very, you know. That's a very good player. Who certainly was a great fit in that in that team. The, the guys that they retained, they, they didn't have to give up in that deal, make it, to me, much easier for James Harden and, and Chris Paul to coexist and play at a high level. The other thing that I would point out to people, and I think this is something that's been overlooked here in recent years for reasons that, that don't really uh, compute in my brain. I was in London for the Olympics when all these guys were, were on mm-hmm. a team together. Um, Chris Paul, you know, LeBron, Kobe, you know, Katie Harden, uh, you know, CP, all these guys. And, the understanding you get of how to coexist with other great players has been ramped up so dramatically with USA basketball's return to dominance that I, I'm afraid people are not really recognizing the work that Jerry Colangelo and the folks at USA basketball have done indirectly, even maybe not even on purpose, but by putting these guys together in that national program and allowing them to, to cultivate bonds and relationships on and off the floor when they have, you know, when they have no other reason other than the USA basketball brand to, to do it for it. There's no other reason they're uniting, but under that brand, it, it crosses shoe company lines, agent lines, whatever your camp is, all that. When they get on that USA basketball stage, these guys have shown you Russell Westbrook was great, you know, playing a secondary role, you know, for USA basketball coming off the bench is a game changer. This guy just won the MVP. Right. Um, you know, James Harden just finished runner up for MVP, but embraced the role that they asked him to play on that team. To me, you go back to that if you're one of these players and remember exactly, you know, what kind of humbling you had to embrace to do that. I mean, a lot of these guys, think about it. A generation ago, do you really think <laughs> some of the stars in the league would have acquiesced to those sorts of, uh, you know, things and, 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 subjected themselves to those sorts of roles in the name of the greater good. Well, in a lot of ways, it was the opposite. Like Jordan exactly. Jordan saying, keep Isaiah off this team or I'm not exactly. playing is like exactly. the, the counter story to everything you're describing. Yes, and I, and I think this is why, take a look at one of those team pictures or go look at the Western Conference All-Star team from, you know, a year or two ago and and look at how many guys are now on, on the same rosters. It. I don't think it's a coincidence. People say it's the AAU culture. I think this is that's a that's a slap in the face of something much bigger than the AAU culture. And that and what it is is these guys are smart. Mm-hmm. Chris Paul is recognizing at this stage of his career, why am I going to drag myself, you know, in this wagon and smash it, you know, up against the wall day after day with the Clippers when I can go somewhere else, start fresh, and not have the same game in game out pressure on my shoulders you know people say oh that's weak or they said the other i think it's brilliant i think it's brilliant on the part of the players to recognize what general managers and team builders recognized generations ago nobody asked magic johnson or larry bird to do it by themselves they had great teammates and a cast of future hall of famers around them to get it done don't get mad at the players for recognizing what team builders have known for years right and players are also recognizing that a top three pick is no longer a near lock for, at the very least, an all-star caliber player. 
See, it's certainly you, not in the short run. I yeah, mean, because be of the one years. and done and the, and the generation that came out of high school. You just can't bank on building through the draft the way you could. Absolutely not. The, the same way, you know, like with the Lakers is like, oh, we got the number one pick. That's James Worthy. Bam. And you just knew you were going to go up a notch. You can't do that anymore with someone like Jason Tatum, for example. Top picks in the draft are no longer plug-and-play players. Right, exactly. For quality teams, and that's just a fact. I mean, I, I was talking about this with Chris Webber one time, and, and Webb came out after his sophomore year, obviously, but he was far more mature than some of the one and doneers we see now. I'm talking mm-hmm. about physically and everything else. The idea of, of Chris Webber coming out and going to a team and being an instant, Im- you know, having an instant impact on their bottom line is much more realistic now than it is for Jason Tatum you know, or Alonzo Ball or somebody to come in and immediately change the fortunes of the team they're going to. And that's because the the number one pick in the draft, the Big Ten player of the year, the college player of the year 20 years ago was a different kind of 19 or 20 year old than the ones we see coming out now. And that's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. And it to me, it makes the criticism of someone like Danny Ainge much more serious because he's stockpiling these picks, and it may be a generation ago you keep those picks precisely because you're stockpiling superstars for the future. But then there's that other voice saying, like, no, what those picks are worth is to cash in on a Paul George now to make you better. And so I ask you that. Like, do you—well, I guess what do you think the Celtics should do? And do you think if you're Danny Ainge and you have the chance to cash those chips for a Paul George, do you do it? Absolutely. And I think if he does that, he'll shut me up and a lot of other people because I'm one of those guys who's sitting around going, why does he keep allowing trade deadlines, drafts, um, you know, to pass without doing something with these picks? And it takes an unbelievable amount of patience as a, t- as a team builder and as a guy who's in charge of a franchise to not jump at all these different offers. I'm sure he's entertained. But if I got a chance to get my hands on a two way player, the caliber of Paul George. I'm making that deal. I'm I'm doing whatever I have to with the with the assets I've piled up if I'm Danny Ainge to make that deal. Now, I wouldn't do it for everybody. I'm not, I'm not saying that they're, you know, that every player that comes down the pike is going to get me to come off of those assets. Paul George is different. He's a guy who plays both ends of the floor at an elite level in a way that maybe six or seven guys in the league can even approach on a given night. You know, as much as I love Jimmy Butler's game, Jimmy Butler's not a lockdown defender or a guy that can compete defensively with the range of players that Paul George can on the defensive end and still go on the other end and get me 30 when I need it. Yeah, and, and that's that's exactly. just a fact. It's just the way it is. Even even a great player is not going to rise to that level on both ends of the floor. So Danny Ainge has a very serious challenge ahead of him, Dave, because he's got to fight with his own inner self to, to st- continue to stay vigilant about what it is he wants from these assets. I mean, he's going to have Gordon Hayward in the free agent pool with a with a clear connection to his coach, to Brad Stevens and the history they have. And then he's going to have the option of trying to swing a deal for a player that the entire universe knows Indiana has to trade. Right. So what am I willing to give up to perhaps get my hands on both those guys and put my team in a position to immediately challenge Cleveland for the top spot in the Eastern Conference? Again, it, like as soon as you say that, I'm thinking, okay, George and Hayward, how do they operate together? But you, you, then you go back to your point, I know, figure, yeah. which is when they're like that good, out. they figure yeah. it out. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember being a naysayer about LeBron going to Miami because I was like him and Wade, <laughs> him and Wade. I was like on ESPN outside the lines being like, like with Chris Broussard. I said, you got two wing players with skills. There's only one ball. How is that going to work? You can't have two superstars like that. And Chris Broussard said, you had Shaq and Kobe. And I said, yeah, but, you know, that ended with Shaq saying, Kobe has my ass taste. <laughs> and that's your best case scenario, has my ass taste? Right. Well, it took him 17 games, though. It took LeBron yeah. It took LeBron and D-Wade 17 to 20 games to figure it out. It took Chris Bosh taking a giant step back from the, you know, the, the first-year mm-hmm. star he'd been in Toronto. It, it's always going to require sacrifice on somebody's part. Um, it, same for Golden State adding Kevin Durant. You know, so there's going to be someone in that mix who has to to figure out the adjustments that need to be made to their own game to you know for the greater good. I would much rather deal with that than deal with four or five years of wishing, hoping, and dreaming yeah. 
that this guy we drafted with the first, second, or third pick is going to turn out to be a superstar. Yeah, and I, I spoke to Greg Anthony privately about when this happened off season with the Miami, and I'll never forget what what he said to me. I was like, "Yeah, Wade, LeBron, two wing players, two stars." And Greg Anthony said to me, he said, look, the ball is like a magnet, and the ball will go where it needs to go. So LeBron will lead the team, and Wade will be fine. He, he would know. He played on a super team in college, one of my all-time yes. favorite teams. So oh, me too. Oh, my GA God. Would, GA understands it as well as anybody. And we've had conversations about that, you know, about the fact that think about if he or Anderson Hunt had decided they were bigger stars than Larry Johnson and Stacey Ogman in college and what kind of disruption that would have been for – what what stands to me as one of the all-time great college super teams yeah. that could have blown that thing up i think but... i think moses scurry would have punched someone in the head <laughs> and jarvis bass Knight would have had his back yes there would have been there would have <laughs> been plenty of candidates you know to, to clean up that mess but instead of it being a mess it became a, th- a thing where and this is why i tell people all the time they complain about well these teams now these players are calling it great conglomerates you know these super teams and these these talent filled teams They've always been around and they've always figured out a way for the stars to coexist and to play off of each other at at every level. You've seen it. I think that's what has always made winning championships such a bellwether for great players. Like people go, well, you know, all the great players don't win championships. Yes. And for good reason, you know, because they've tried, they've chased titles. Guys have chased the ring plenty of times in, in previous generations. It doesn't always work because you don't always have the right guys at the right time to understand what it takes to get there. Now this gets to um, a question like, and it's obviously, you know, some, it just is what it is and we can't bemoan the past, but this is my, have we lost something question with this idea of you package good players and draft picks for superstars. And that's the end game is to try to create these kinds of teams. You might've heard that um, this latest rumor that the wizards are shopping Otto Porter uh, I'm trying to put a package together with Paul George. And John Wall is endorsing this, saying you need three superstars in this league if we want to hope to compete. And I'm sitting here as a diehard Wizards fan with almost like a lump in my throat because I'm like, damn, I've seen Otto Porter develop on this team. And now that that ends. And, I mean, am, am I just dead wrong on this? Or, or would you make – I mean, of course you'd make that move, Otto Porter, for Paul George – but man, I mean, what what do you think about that dynamic where you're you're developing players, but then best case scenario you're you're losing them if they're not a superstar? This has less to do with John Wall's words or Otto Porter's development, and more to do with the financial state of the NBA right now. Um, there was a time when an Otto Porter wouldn't have upset the the order of things on a team's, you ah. know. Right. financial bottom line the way he does now right. because of the, the funds available for free agents based on whatever summer you become a part of the free agent pool. I mean, think about the guys who got, who cashed in dramatically last year. Normally those deals, Timo Mozgov, you know, John Lure, um, Luol Deng, even, you know, some of those, those, those deals don't happen in a different generation um, in a different financial time for the league. So I don't penalize Otto Porter, you know, right now i think he's a victim of a circumstance that and i say i use the word victim loosely here this man's getting ready to cash in in ways that you know you you couldn't see coming two years ago right um but that is a part of today's nba landscape that has has to be a reality for everybody they understand that yes you need superstars to compete at the highest level and that means sometimes sacrificing the hard work that you've put in developing players to get to that point. I, I will tell you this. The reason Golden State's model is not one that can be duplicated and, and one that that other teams should be, you know, burning the midnight oil trying to follow is because they were ahead of the player development curve. They, they developed their own draft picks, first, second round picks, none of which were top, you know, three or four picks, not even top five picks. They developed their own guys and got to a point where they were championship caliber before they added Kevin Durant. And, and people go, well, KD's joining a team that was already at that level. Yeah, but he was joining a team that wasn't built on top-shelf NBA draft picks that were guaranteed to be stars. We didn't know Steph was going to be as good as he turned out to be. We didn't know Clay was going to turn out 
to totally outplay his draft position. We had no idea Draymond Green would completely blow away his draft position. That is a product of unbelievable serendipity, you know, on the Warriors' part and a player development component that to me is second to none in any sport and and one that you'd be a fool to try and assume you can manipulate, duplicate, um, or replicate in any fashion because sometimes you just get lightning in a bottle as an organization, the right players, right time, and everything falls into place. The Warriors are smart enough. Bob Myers and, and the Warriors staff are smart enough to know this isn't something they've manipulated. They've, they've had a ton of good fortune fall in their laps, and they haven't screwed it up. Wow. Because you're a journalist, I respect a, a great deal. This week has seen kind of a bloodletting for our profession, uh, both in terms of the journalists on MTV News. You probably heard about Fox News, the all-video yes. content. Right. Uh, the layoffs there were coming off the ESPN layoffs a couple months back. If you met somebody young who wanted to get into this business, what would you say to them? I, I'm going to tell them, and, and I have to speak at the sports business classroom in Vegas, you know, in, in a couple of weeks. At, at the NABJ? At the... No, no, it's at the uh, during Summer League out in Las Vegas. Okay, um, okay. I would tell them the same idiotic thing somebody told me 25, 26 years ago when I decided to get in this business. Like, if you have a passion for something and and you have a vision for what you want to do with your life, and everybody finds that, at, you get that at a different point. Some people get it at eight years old. I, got, I have friends in this business who knew it eight, nine, and ten years old. I, well, I always wanted to be a reporter. I always wanted to be on ESPN. I always wanted to be a sports broadcaster. Some of us don't stumble into it until we get to college or in our 20s. But you have to have an undeniable spirit and understanding of who and what you are and the fact that you're crazy enough to chase dreams no matter what the odds look like, you know, stacked against you or or in, in the opposite direction. I was lucky. I had parents who believed in, in the power of the word yes. They didn't believe in the word no. There was never a time when I, I would bring something up or, hey, I want to try this or I want to go do this internship or I want to go work for free here for 13 weeks because this is going to benefit me later. I was never met with the word no. It was always go for it. We'll figure it out. We'll take, you mm. know, we'll be here. We'll, we'll support you. A lot of times you, people don't have that support, Dave. They don't have the – they can't walk that tightrope. They can't walk that fine line between the reality of handling your business and taking care of whatever you have to take care of in chasing a dream. Um, there were plenty of people I got into the business with who were more talented than me, um, who were just as, you know, dogged about it, but they didn't have the support system necessarily all the time. I was lucky. I recognize that. It's why I work hard. It's why I don't betray the craft. And it's why I respect the job that we all do. And it pains me to see things happen the way they are now because there are a ton of good people that have been in this business that are struggling in right now and looking for an opportunity. And I, and I hope they find it. Wow. I hope they do too. And I, I wish I could be a fly on the wall when you talk to these young journalists, because that's a message they got to hear. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Don't do this unless you don't love the, unless you don't love the journey. Can't just love the process. No, you, you can't just be infatuated with the end result. Right. You have to love the process. You, you have, have to, to love, love the process, the journey. I mean, and I enjoyed every stop I've made along my career i've enjoyed each and every one of them to the fullest and i'm when i moved on to the next one i didn't look back on whatever i'd done before something to to disrespect you know mm -hmm. i had lunch with a guy yesterday who i've known for years and he told me he's like yeah you started out covering high schools in jackson mississippi you know in the in the 90s man that you know aren't you glad that wasn't your first job and i was like it was my first job i did it when i was in college and if i was still doing it i wouldn't be any less enthusiastic about it than what I'm doing right now. Um, but, you know, I don't I don't disrespect the hard work it takes to be good at anything. And I think when you understand that, you know, no matter where you work, no matter what you're getting paid, when you understand the hard work it takes to be successful at something, you appreciate it and you, and you respect it the way you should. Sekou Smith, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. Sure, Dave. Thanks, man.
And now a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. For 150 years, The Nation has put out the news without favor for any political party. They are only allied with the truth. This week, you have to get this next issue. It's called Trump and the NRA. Arming the Culture War Has Just Begun by George Zornick. If anybody out there saw the NRA's sick recruitment video that they put out earlier this week and their non-statement after the murder of Philando Castile, a legal gun owner shot by police, then you do need to read what the NRA is up to politically. Trump and the NRA, The Nation magazine. Also, David Cole on the Supreme Court moving to the right and Katha Pollitt writing about Trump as Julius Caesar. Support this magazine. Just go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to Edge of Sports. And now I've got some choice words about a historic political partnership. Look, when NBA owner Clay Bennett a man with politics somewhere to the right of Genghis Khan, absconded with the NBA's Seattle Supersonics, devastating a city, and moved them to Oklahoma for the high-minded purpose of hundreds of millions of dollars in corporate welfare. He left something behind. The WNBA franchise, the Seattle Storm. Bennett's disregard for women's basketball has had two unintended consequences. One... It was a gift for the people of Seattle, who've been able to watch a team with terrific players over the years, such as Brianna Stewart, Jewel Lloyd, and Sue Bird. And second, it is proving very important for an organization that Bennett's operatives in Washington want to destroy, Planned Parenthood. Yes, Planned Parenthood. Even if Bennett had kept the Sonics in Seattle, the man who keeps a bust of Ronald Reagan outside of his office would not be allowing the audacious and desperately needed partnership just announced between the Storm and Planned Parenthood. This July 18th will be Planned Parenthood night for the Storm, the first ever such partnership between a pro sports franchise and the besieged women's health organization. Before the game, there will be a fundraising and informational rally on Key Arena's West Plaza for Planned Parenthood. The move by the Storm is a recognition that Planned Parenthood is not only popular in liberal enclaves like Seattle, Despite years of demonization, it is viewed positively by a majority of this country and is far more popular than the illegitimate sexual predator who inhabits the Oval Office. But despite the organization's popularity, its ability to provide services, particularly in poor rural places, could be forever crippled by the health legislation that the Senate is currently debating. Don Laggins, the executive vice president of the Planned Parenthood Federation of America, said this to me. We're honored that the Seattle Storm is standing with Planned Parenthood. This marks the first partnership we've ever had with a sports franchise. This event and their support will help raise awareness among their fans and sports fans broadly. The public overwhelmingly supports Planned Parenthood, and people around this country are alarmed and outraged that Congress is working to block millions from accessing birth control and cancer screenings at Planned Parenthood. That's why people from all walks of life are speaking up loudly to demand that Congress preserve patients' ability to access care at Planned Parenthood, end quote. This move by the storm to openly partner with Planned Parenthood is also significant because even with the renaissance of outspoken athletes in recent years, team owners and executives have largely been unapologetic institutions of reaction. If they aren't trying to shut down political athletes or wrest even more corporate welfare from cash-strapped cities, they're projecting the politics of hyper-militarism or hyper-corporate control. Pro sports owners have given millions of dollars to the current occupant of the White House, and he is rewarding them with ambassadorships, payback for greasing the greasiest palms we've ever seen in the Oval Office. Sports owners have also blithely tread on women's reproductive health. The Kansas City Royals have an agreement with the anti-abortion organization Vitae, or is it Vitae? I don't care, because they have a massive billboard inside the stadium and advertises on the team's radio broadcasts. Vitae, or Vitae, also disseminates false and dangerous information about women's health, such as the fiction that cancer and suicide are byproducts of abortion. The Royals also rejected a radio ad by a women's group attempting to counter these myths. In other words, they are the antithesis of Planned Parenthood. The move by the storm is a recognition that women's health is under attack and sports franchises, not merely athletes, can play a role 
in turning this around. And now, a quick word from the second best podcast produced by The Nation magazine, Start Making Sense, hosted by John Wiener. This week, they have Naomi Klein, who is saying, kill the Trump within. It's not enough to say no to Trump, she argues. We need to transform ourselves and our movement to bring about the change we need. Also, the Senate Republicans' health care fiasco with Zoe Carpenter and David Cole, the national legal director of the ACLU, explains the Supreme Court's decision to hear arguments in October about Trump's travel ban. All that on the new edition of Start Making Sense, Political Talk Without the Boring Parts, which posts each Thursday at thenation.com. And now, back to Edge of Sports. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award, given every week by the Edge of Sports podcast. Just Stand Up Award. I got to give it to Chip Kelly. Chip Kelly, who this week said the following. Cap was awesome. Um, You know, at the beginning of the year, made a stance in terms of what he believed was right. You know, and we recognized and and supported his ability to do that. Um, But he never brought that into the locker room. You know, we had a meeting the day after um, the Green Bay game um, that he did in the preseason. And he explained all the players, his thought process and mindset of what he was doing. Um, and there were some players that agreed with him. There were some players that didn't agree with him. But, you know, after that point, you know, we heard from the outside about what a distraction it is, um, except those people weren't in our locker room, and it never was a distraction, and Cap never brought that and turned it into a circus or whatever people think that. Um, came to work every day extremely diligent in terms of his preparation, uh, in terms of his work ethic in the weight room, you know, in terms of his work ethic in the meeting room and, and – um, I really enjoyed Cap. I've, I've talked to Cap three or four times since uh, we both left San Francisco. I know he's working out really hard in New York right now, and you know I, I think he's a really good person and a really good player and, and uh, really enjoy coaching him. Now, why does that matter? It matters because Chip Kelly is right now on the outside looking in when it comes to the NFL coaching world. And believe me, complimenting Colin Kaepernick's work habits is not the express lane to getting a job. And so him standing up and doing that when he doesn't have to, and being so forceful about Colin Kaepernick, who he is, what he stands for, his work ethic, his political principles, that matters. That absolutely matters because one of the big things they use against him, of course, is Kaepernick is bad for the locker room, as if he has some sort of viral disease. So thank you, Chip Kelly, for stepping up. And I always have my own good feelings about Chip Kelly because when I was traveling with Dr. John Carlos from the 68 Olympics, we put out uh, letters to all the big-time college football coaches and basketball coaches to see if they wanted John Carlos to come in to speak to their teams. And Chip Kelly was the only person to get back to us and say, yeah, I want John Carlos to speak to my team. And that was a beautiful thing. So Chip Kelly, well done, sir. Just Stand Up Award just for you. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. Goes to John McEnroe's enablers. Not John McEnroe. Now, why do I say that? Well, John McEnroe is hawking his new book. He was on NPR. People probably heard this by now. He was asked about Serena Williams. He said she was the greatest women's tennis player ever. And then the interviewer followed up by saying, well, what about compared to the men or overall? I forget how she phrased it. But then McEnroe came back with, ah, she'd be 700th in the world. Now, forget for a second how tired this is, this idea of comparing women to men in these sports. Forget for a second that this is what Babe Didrikson had to deal with, Billie Jean King had to deal with, Martina Navratilova had to deal with. Uh, Forget for a second that all this really is is a a statement of both uh, male fragility not being able to handle incredibly powerful women in the field of athletics. And also forget for a second that questioning Serena Williams, one of the great athletes of our time, I mean, it's just an absurd thing to do. I thought if anything was settled law in the world of sports, it was the greatness of Serena Williams. Forget all of this. The thing that particularly bothers me is the way this became talk radio fodder for the next several days of a lot of male hosts defending McEnroe and saying, oh, he's absolutely right, harumph, harumph, harumph. Again, this is an old discussion. It's a tired discussion. Martina had to deal with it 30 years ago. Billie Jean, it's just, it's so ridiculous. I mean, I grew up thinking Cheryl Miller was one of the greatest basketball players I'd ever seen. Her greatness was never something that I tried to measure against Dr. J. I thought, oh, Dr. J is better than Cheryl Miller, therefore Cheryl Miller is not great. 
It's a ridiculous way of trying to understand uh, sports in general, and it's a ridiculous way to attack Serena. And I do think McEnroe was speaking just off the cuff and trying to sell his book. And I also think that sometimes when people talk off the cuff, they reveal their character, which is what John McEnroe did. But I'm particularly angry at the sports radio hosts who need to sit their asses down. And you know what's the worst part about it is one of the big reasons why they keep talking about this is that it's June as I'm recording this. It's the last day of June. And this is the slow time for sports radio. And sports media, I'm telling you, it's like a 24-hour beast. It constantly needs to be fed. So they've just decided they're going to feed on this no matter how tired, no matter how reactionary, no matter how stupid. So that's your Just Sit Your Ass Down award to John McEnroe's enablers. And screw it. Let's give it to John McEnroe, too. And now for the section of the show that we are calling Kaepernick Watch, where we assess the latest politics and rumblings around Colin Kaepernick. And this week we're going to talk about Colin Kaepernick's right to not do a damn interview. Okay, look. After an off-season of lies about his character, disinformation about his statistical production, concern trolling over his vegetarian diet, and harassment generated by the cheap bully in the White House, NFL execs and their trusted gatekeeper journalists have offered an olive branch to Colin Kaepernick. Prominent writers at Sports Illustrated and Yahoo Sports are saying that he should do an interview explaining how much he wants to play football. That will be a ticket to getting a contract. These are the same access merchant journalists that previously trashed Kaepernick in articles and on social media. The idea that they have his best interests at heart is like saying that Maleficent handed Sleeping Beauty that apple because she was concerned about her vitamin intake. Current San Francisco 49ers general manager John Lynch, who praised Kaepernick's work ethic and desire to play, also echoed this sentiment, saying that if Kaepernick wants to make a team, he should, quote, Go sit down and do an interview and let people know exactly where you stand. I think that would help him, end quote. Look, maybe Colin Kaepernick will do such an interview in the weeks ahead. And by all means, that is an interview that I or any other sports reporter with a working cerebrum would leap at the opportunity to conduct. But it is also worth defending the message that Kaepernick is sending by not consenting to such an interview. Kaepernick is being asked to go on a TV tour to explain in heartfelt terms why he should have a chance at a job. Usually those kinds of media campaigns are reserved for players looking to get back into the league after a criminal matter, such as after Michael Vick was released from federal prison and was on 60 Minutes with Tony Dungy, or when Ray Rice was on the Today Show alongside his wife Janae after footage was released of him striking her in an elevator. We also see these campaigns when players are trying to revamp their image, reassuring their fan base that they found Christ after being accused of sexual assault, as did Steelers quarterback Ben Roethlisberger. The idea at work is that Kaepernick somehow did something wrong by taking a knee during the anthem, something amoral, something that demands atonement. The rhetoric that he needs to make amends with fans and the league ignores the fact that while his politics are certainly polarizing, Former players and coaches swear by his character, and fans are still keeping his jersey among the league's top sellers. What this is really about, in my humble opinion, is owners seeing if they can break him. He needs to be publicly broken so the blackballing can have its desired effect. A shot across the bow at any player who thinks that they can use the field to express their politics. With so many NFL owners supporting a disastrously unpopular president, their desire to crack the whip makes all the sense in the world. If Kaepernick can show that they've broken him, they'll take him back. It reminds one of the Martin Luther King Jr. quote, that a man cannot ride you unless your back is bent. But Kaepernick won't bend to this. He's not chasing brand appeal or paychecks, and that makes him resistant to the coercion of owners. He just wants to play football and thinks he should because he had a great season and is by any measure better than, at minimum, half the quarterbacks currently on rosters. No one is asking quarterback also rands such as Austin Davis or Mark Sanchez to explain whether they in fact deserve to be in the league. No one is asking the quarterback whose job Kaepernick took last year, Blaine Gabbert, whether he has the right to his job as a backup on the Arizona Cardinals. There is a principle here that Colin Kaepernick is defending through his silence. The principle that he deserves to play in this league on the merits 
and that should be enough. The NFL often asserts that teams just want to win, and they are, as Roger Goodell bleats, a meritocracy. This embarrassing offseason has exposed this to be a lie. Colin Kaepernick should not have to plead on Good Morning America for a job. If NFL owners could just keep their dang politics out of sports, he wouldn't have to. That's all for this week on the Edge of Sports Podcast. Thank you so much, Sekou Smith, for making the time on your vacation. Thank you so much to Daniel Baker for producing this week's show. David Tigabu will be back in the fold in the weeks ahead. If you want to listen to back episodes of the show, please go to edgeofsportspodcast.com. We got all the episodes lined up for you. Please uh, subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your app of choice. Please make a comment, give a rating. All that stuff helps the show immeasurably. Please tell a friend. And last but not least, please be safe over this July 4th week. For everybody out there, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.